Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Hi, and welcome to The Long View. I'm Jeff Patak, Chief Ratings Officer for Morningstar Research Services. And I'm Christine Benz, Director of Personal Finance and Retirement Planning for Morningstar. This week, we're pleased to bring you a special State of Retirement Income episode, which we recorded live at the annual Morningstar Investment Conference held recently in Chicago, Illinois. For this discussion, we turn the tables on Christine, who's part of an expert retirement planning panel that also includes David Blanchett, Managing Director and Head of Retirement Research at PGM DC Solutions, and Karsten Yeska, the founder of Early Retirement Now. You might remember David and Karsten, who were guests on past episodes of The Long View. In this panel discussion that we recorded before a live audience, we delve into a number of retirement planning topics, including the impact of inflation on spending patterns, the implications of the recent sell-off on asset allocation, sequence of returns risk, optimal social security claimings practices, the role and importance of guaranteed income sources, and lots more. Without further ado, please enjoy this special episode of The Long View. So I think we'll start with what is the topic of the moment. There are many, but certainly inflation probably is at the top of our pecking list of concerns. Uh, Christine, I'm going to start with you. Let's suppose I'm a retiree. I've targeted a 4% real spending rate. If I want to keep up with rising prices, that means withdrawing 8% more this year, give or take, than I did last. Do you think that's advisable, or is it better to spend less than that? Well, I think the starting point, Jeff, when people think about this is to not just take 8% and run with it, but take a look at personal spending. Uh, There's been this ongoing research about how older adults spend. The Bureau of Labor Statistics has been calculating this parallel statistic called CPIE that looks at how older adults spend. And when you compare that to the general CPI figures, you see some changes in the consumption baskets that they use. So older adults tend to consume less energy. They tend to be commuting less. I think everyone's commuting less right now, but older adults always have been commuting less. So rising energy prices have affected them relatively less. Um, They tend to spend a little bit less on food. So I would urge anyone who's working with retirees to go through that personalized calculation. I think they may find that in some categories they're, they're spending more than the CPI figures would uh, embed, but I think that is the starting point for this exercise, rather than assuming that if inflation, if CPI is 8%, I'll naturally give myself that bump up. So I think that that is the starting point. Another thing I think about is David's really influential research, which I know we're going to talk about, which is sort of the trajectory of spending over retirees' life cycles. And David's research has shown that retirees do tend to spend a little bit less in the middle years of retirement. So I think that argues if someone's in the early phases of their retirement life cycle, they could potentially take more from their portfolio with the knowledge that their spending will naturally come down. Yeah, that's actually the next place I wanted to go with you, David. As Christine alludes to, you've been a pioneer in studying how retirees spend. Uh, My question is, how does inflation potentially scramble that picture? For instance, could we see a scenario in which retirees are tempted to accelerate spending? Yeah, so the big uncertainty, I think, with retiree spending is is healthcare. Um, If you look at the retiree consumption basket, 
Um, about 10% of spending is on healthcare when you're 65, about 20% at 85. And so retirees in general kind of actively choose to spend less over time, but healthcare is this kind of rising share of overall spending. So from my perspective, I think it is pretty safe to say, hey, the average retiree spends less as they age, but the big uncertainty is kind of where, where healthcare costs are going in the next, say, 5, 10, or 20 years. Got it. I wanted to talk about the supply side, which is the nest eggs that we try to build up to fund our retirement spending. Uh, I guess one question is, should I consider adjusting my approach to conserving and growing my retirement assets to mitigate the danger inflation poses to my net assets? That's a question that you've addressed relatively recently, uh, Karsten. What, what's your take on that? All right, so first of all, I think we should resist this temptation that just because we have an economic shock and we don't have to throw out everything we know about mm -hmm. retirement planning just because we have the shock, because it's still within the bounds of, of the historical uh, spectrum of what we observed in, in terms of uh, equity valuation. Uh, yeah, it's higher than average, but remember the Trinity study and a lot of the, the retirement research on safe withdrawal rates has been calibrated to the historical worst case scenarios, not the average scenarios, right? So, so we are obviously worse than the average, right? Higher equity valuation, still very low bond yields, high inflation, but we are not out of the bounds of the, of the historical, uh, uh, of historical uh, 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 intervals of, of, of what we've seen, say double digit inflation in the 1970s. Uh, and uh, so I, I don't think we have to reinvent everything from scratch just because we have 8% inflation. <laughs> Uh, now, the concern is obviously, well, the first concern would be, well, what if the future is worse than the past, right? So it's like that, that uh, Simpsons joke where Bart says, today is the worst day of my life, and Homer says, your worst day of your life so far, right? So <laughs> the future could be worse uh, than the past, but uh, I, I don't quite see that we're going to have another 70% uh, drop in the stock market, like in 1929 to 1932. So I, I don't quite see that. I think the, the bigger concern is that uh, even though historically the 4% rule might have been safe, uh, there were also a lot of uh, cases where the 4% rule in the end worked, but it was a very scary ride in between. So I always use this analogy. It's, it's a Trinity, Trinity Airlines. They have a 2% chance of crashing. But the other 98% could still be very scary plane rides, and you don't know in real time if you're going to make it. Right. So in this, this could be the, the, uh, the, uh, the reason why we probably tread a little bit lighter, right? So for example, Morningstar had this uh, study where they said, well, the, the safe withdrawal rate uh, is probably about 3.3% instead of 4%. And it might still mean that the 4% rule works in the end, but with a 3.3% rate, you might be safer and it might be a more pleasant ride, and it doesn't look quite as bad as some of the historical cohorts. For example, in 1972, you had a cohort uh, that depleted almost 70% of its assets over the first 10 years. In the end, they made it, but uh, they probably would have uh, maybe gone back to work or would have uh, changed their withdrawal rate uh, halfway or one-third into retirement. So, so, yeah, I mean, one way to hedge against uh, uncertainties, uh, and not just running out of money, but also the volatility in between, is obviously do a lower withdrawal rate, like, like you suggested, like I've suggested in my studies. Yep. I also wanted to ask, and we'll talk some more about portfolio construction, sequence of returns risk, and then consider your suggestion for what, what it is we should take up as part of this panel. Before we did that, though, I think it's kind of become writ that, that people should bump up their savings rates to offset paltry yields and what, what appear to be lofty valuations. But now 
yields have risen, stocks have sold off, and multiples are maybe a bit less stretched. And so do you think that takes some of the pressure off to step up savings, or do you think that's inadvisable to be sending that kind of message to retirees at this point? And maybe I'll turn to you, Karsten, for, for that one. Well, yeah, I mean, as I said, so I, um, people use this 4% rule of the 25x uh, spending. Well, if you do 30x spending, so you have at least that cushion uh, if the market draws down in the near term and maybe after the first little bit of the drawdown, then you have the 4% rule, then you probably have a, uh, a, a, a safer uh, and a safer feeling retirement. Yep. And um, it's, it's don't, don't just worry about your making it after 30 years. Also, think about how scary the ride might be uh, over the first 10 years, which is where really the sequence of return risk comes in. Christine, when you've gotten questions like that, you know, can I go a little bit easier on my savings now that bond yields are higher and my money's working a little bit harder for me? What kind of counsel have you offered? Well, I think for people in accumulation mode, Jeff, we were talking to Cliff Asness yesterday, and he made the very good point that for accumulators, this is kind of what you want, that you want to be a buyer in down markets, and you want to be selling that stuff when the market's elevated. So for people in the accumulation phase, yes, I think that sort of perversely, it hasn't felt good, but I think that the fact that we have seen stock valuations come down a little bit, that bond yields appear to be going to lend more of a helping hand than they have in the past, that argues that potentially savers could take the pressure off themselves a little bit. But I think inflation is still a headwind, which argues for certainly maintaining ample equity exposure for people who are still in the accumulation slash saving phase. Makes sense. David, I wanted to turn to you for the next one, which is a tough one. Bonds have gotten whacked recently, and that probably has been a rude awakening for retirees who've come to depend on the income streams and also the diversifying diversification benefits, I should say, that they confer from it. What, if anything, do you think that they should do in the face of the sell-off in fixed income? Stay the course? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think staying the course is key. I think that, that thinking about alternative investments or other, other ways to diversify a portfolio, but I don't think that bonds are dead. I think they, import, they play an important role in a portfolio, and it's kind of foolish, this notion that like the 60-40 is no longer um, a valid portfolio because it really has you know, stood the test of time, not just in the U.S. historically, but also across different international markets. Yep. And Carson, I take it that, that you concur as well when it comes to something like the traditional U.S. 60-40 portfolio or even a global 60-40, you think that'll stand the test of time or do you think people should be considering modifications to it? Well, I mean, I, I, I'm tempted to do a little bit of what, what Cliff Asner said yesterday, right? So you almost have no choice but to raise your risk a little bit. So maybe the, the new 60-40 has now become 70-30. Uh, so that, that could be one option. Uh-huh. Uh, the, the other option is, of, of course, now that bond yields are again at, at least 3%. Um, if we have a slowdown, probably they have some room to go down. They could be a diversifier again. Okay. Uh, and um, uh, so it's, it's uh, don't run now. Don't sell at the, uh, at the bottom of the bond market because now it actually looks like bonds can, can have this div- diversification uh, feature again. Yep. I did want to ask about sequence of return risk, which is kind of the bugaboo for many about to retire or, or early retirees. Uh, Christine, for, for those folks, they're potentially facing a bad scenario. You know, they've only recently retired or they're about to, markets have sold off, that heightens their sequence of return risk. If you're one of them confronting this, what, if any, adjustments 
should they be thinking about making to ensure that they don't outlive their savings? A few things. So I think um, the starting point would be to kind of be thinking about some sort of flooring for the retirement plan. So thinking hard about Social Security strategy, thinking about whether there is a role for some sort of an annuity product to just sort of provide the fixed uh, expenses that are that the household is requiring. And so I love that as the starting point to think about, well, how can we supply lifetime income sources to meet those very basic needs? And then from there, I think the idea of employing some sort of a variable withdrawal strategy makes a lot of sense. And in our research, we explored a variety of different variable withdrawal strategies, but being willing to vary that withdrawal based on what's going on with the portfolio and Unfortunately, that means taking a little bit less in weak market environments. And then I think in terms of the portfolio composition, making sure that there are enough safe assets to draw upon so that you're not having to touch depressed equity or fixed income assets. So I know we're going to talk about the bucket strategy. I've been thinking like about that JAWS line. You're going to need a bigger bucket, but I have been thinking that um, cash really, I mean, for someone's active spending needs, I think uh, even though inflation will eat it alive over time, I think the bucket strategy, because it does call for having those liquid reserves to meet near-term cash flows, I think can provide not just those living expenses, but also a lot of peace of mind to to sort of put up with the volatility that's going on with the long-term portfolio. So why don't we bring back up the polling question, and we can see what you've had to say. And it it looks like it's B, by a nose, the 4% spending rule. Can it be sustained? And and so, David, we'll turn to you on this. The 4% spending rule, which I think many of you are familiar with, can it be sustained? And then more generally, what, what is a good framework by which to think about a sustainable withdrawal rate? Yeah, so I'm probably more like team 4% or even 5%. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to caveat that real quick because there's, there's lots of assumptions you have to use in a model to figure out what is a safe withdrawal from a portfolio. And you want to use, you know, realistic returns, realistic mortality periods. Um, and the key is, is, that, is that the way that we measure outcomes today I think is, is incredibly flawed. Right, if, if you all run a Monte Carlo simulation for clients, and most early research in retirement did this, you do a, a success analysis. You say, oh, it's a binary outcome, one if you pass, zero if you fail, you average those together. Right? There's no context around the magnitude of failure. And that's really important in the context of one, almost every retiree has guaranteed income. Some of that covers um, most or all of their kind of non-discretionary spending. And two, you know, households have the capacity to cut back on spending in retirement. It's a very different liability than, say, a pension liability. And so when I think about, like, is 4%, does it work? Well, to me, the questions are, you know, like, well, how much of your income goal is covered from guaranteed income, and what is your flexibility? Um, if you have very little guaranteed income and no flexibility, well, 3% is the new 4%. But for most Americans who have a significant portion of their retirement income via things like Social Security and pensions and have some flexibility, I think, I think 5% is actually not too off base as a starting target for retiree. Carson, what do you think? 
I mean, you'll be shocked how many people, for example, in the early retirement community say, oh, I'm going to completely ignore Social Security. And then they run their retirement simulations and then they come up with 3.5%. And they, of course, I mean, there's some people in the early retirement community, right, they try to outdo each other, right? One retires at 29 and then somebody is 28. I think now somebody retired at 22. But that's, that's, <laughs> not, that's not the norm, right? The norm in the early retirement community is people my age, so in their 40s, maybe, uh, maybe even early 50s, they retire, and if they don't take into account that they have Social Security in, in just a decade or a decade and a half, um, uh, th they should take that into account, and they basically have this two-stage pro uh, process, or maybe even more stages than that, right? So first you withdraw only from your portfolio, then uh, Social Security complements uh, your retirement, and then you might even further draw down, uh, uh, further scale down your expenses later in retirement. So you have this multi-stage process taking into account future cash flows, future uh, reductions in spending, absolutely, most people can actually start with something like a 5% or 6% withdrawal from their portfolio. And then, of course, the withdrawals from the portfolio, they will be scaled down, even though your consumption might even stay the same. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm completely with you. Of course, the 25-year-old the retiree shouldn't go at 5% <laughs> uh, with today's equity valuation. So it, it should be more personalized. And the personalization obviously has to go in, in two dimensions, right? One is the macro picture, and then one is this idiosyncratic, uh, 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 your parameters. Uh, how old are you? What supplemental cash flows do you have? Do you have Social Security, government pension, uh, a corporate pension? Uh, once you factor that all in, yeah, very easily you can get 5% or more uh, for some retirees. David, you alluded to some research that Christine and I and a colleague of ours, John Reckenthaler, had done on sustainable withdrawal rates. We did come up with less than five. In fact, less than four. It was 3.3%. But to your point, we were focused on that pot of money as if it was going to sustain the retiree throughout retirement. So that is a very, very useful distinction to draw. Christine, I wanted to turn to you for a minute and maybe widen out. You talk to retirees on a very regular basis. What are the biggest mistakes you see people make in setting their withdrawal rate? And, and do you think they more often overspend or underspend? Well, I think it depends on the cohort and it depends on the time period. But research from Vanguard and others has shown that, in fact, underspending is, I think, a significant issue with many retirees, especially as we've had sort of this steady march upward in, in terms of equity prices. We have many retirees who probably quite underspend relative to what they could spend. And that may be a choice. Uh, they may have a strong bequest motive that is motivating them to spend less. But I think that when we look at the data over the past decade, and I would guess that, that it's true of many of the advisor's clients, that uh, that tendency to underspend is, is a bigger deal and, and a bigger problem. I sometimes, you know, will meet uh, 80 plus year old retiree who will come up and proudly tell me that he spends 3% of his portfolio per year. So he's just taking out that fixed percentage of that portfolio. And I'm thinking, holy cow, I, I hope that your quality of life is good at that level because to me that sounds uh, way too small of a percentage, especially at that life, life stage. Yep. Maybe turning to the psychology of withdrawing, what do you think are some of the most useful tools retirees can use to manage through the psychology of withdrawing? I'm, I'm sure that one of the things that will come to mind, Christine, because you've done so much work on it, is bucketing. Maybe you can talk about why why it is you think bucketing has the merit that it has to sure. retirees. 
So I was initially uh, introduced to bucketing, talking to Harold Avensky, probably like 12, almost 15 years ago, and Harold is, is a was a financial planner. He's largely retired now. was a was a professor of financial planning, and he mentioned this bucket approach that he used with his clients, which was basically a cash bucket that he bolted on to the long-term portfolio that he was managing for them. And his comment to me was that it just gave his clients an extraordinary amount of peace of mind with the long-term plan. So he would call them up in environments like right now and say, how are you feeling? Your portfolio's dropped quite a bit. Are you still comfortable with this? And they'd say yes, because we have our cash needs set aside in this bucket, number one, whatever you want to call it, the liquidity bucket. And so we know that we can still take that cruise that we had planned with our family for next year. We can still keep going out to dinner on Saturday night. The things that really constitute quality of life for his clients, those needs were all being met because they had that liquidity bucket set aside. So I always think, you know, with bucketing, advisors don't have to use buckets at all, but I do think that it's a helpful construct when talking about, well, here's the asset allocation that I'm recommending, here's how we're doing things to help the client understand whatever asset allocation that you're recommending and also just how the volatility in the market is not going to disrupt any near-term plans. Makes sense. David, maybe to build on an earlier comment that you made, I mean, it sounds like one of the, the tools that retirees could use to manage through the psychology of withdrawal is understanding the totality of their wealth, the sources of their cash flows and their durability. Other things come to mind that you think are, are particularly worthwhile tools that retirees should consider just to make sure that they can withdraw in an orderly way and with peace of mind? Well, I think that, that to me, the, the reason it's, it's so fast and you, know, you see people underspend because they've undersaved, right? So how is it that you're underspending when you've undersaved? It's because it's just so hard to take money from a portfolio when you have an uncertain lifespan. I don't know how long I'm gonna live. And so when you read, when you see the surveys that ask retirees how do they think about their, their savings and their, and their spending, they don't wanna deplete their capital. And so I think that, that you know, creating behavioral mechanisms to help someone do that is incredibly valuable. Like, like buckets, for example, I'm a huge fan of them because I think that they're a very valuable behavior way to help someone improve how they think about market risk. That being said, I don't know if there's like huge, um, like academic benefits to them, you can create synthetic, you know, synthetically like the same thing with a portfolio. But I think I think that's the key. It's it's, it's the psychology of clients that I'm sure you see a lot, helping them make better choices that they even even with an advisor they wouldn't make on their own. Right. So I mean, one is have a plan, right, that gives you mm -hmm. confidence. Mm -hmm. uh, then update your plan. Right. So for example, if you're 80 years old and you're still spending that 3%, well, have you updated your plan along the way? And uh, so, I mean, obviously in, in defense of that 80 year old, you could say, well, the equity returns were probably so spectacularly above uh, expectation. So uh, your portfolio outgrew your spending. Mm -hmm. Uh, but, I mean, regularly updating your plan uh, and I imagining uh, three years into retirement, I imagine you were to retire today again, right, with your current portfolio and, uh, and your current uh, spending, does it still work? Uh, am I still confident? Uh, and uh, yes, I mean, I, I agree. So the bucket strategy, in some way, it's window dressing because if you rebalance the buckets, right, uh, of course, your, your money is fungible, right? You take it out of the cash bucket, but then your risky assets have to replenish uh, the bucket. But I mean, 
mean, it's helpful, of course, in the sense of uh, coming up with an asset allocation because we can't be 100% equities. We have to have some safe assets. And there are different ways of gauging what is the right percentage of, of safe assets. One would be, so the bucket, right? You have the buckets in the sense of, well, I want to make it through this length of a recession uh, and this length of a, uh, uh, of a, a weak economy like the 1970s, but you can't be overly bond heavy because you want to hedge against the supply side shock in the in the 70s, but you want to have some bonds in there because you want to have the, the diversification benefits uh, if we have a demand shock recession. So you want to have some equities, some bonds, some cash. Uh, and I look at it uh, from, a, from a historical uh, simulation point of view. Some people do the Monte Carlo simulations, but uh, you could arrive at the same results roughly uh, and very intuitively through the bucket strategy. So in that sense, it, it helps, obviously. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Christine, I wanted to ask you about flexible withdrawal approaches, which I think have come up several times during the course of the conversation. They can support higher withdrawals by, as you put it, putting spin on the ball. Can you talk about the pros and cons of these approaches and, and who they might be right for? Sure. So that was a big thrust of our paper. Everyone kind of took that 3.3% number and ran with it. And we did spend a lot of time looking at these variable strategies because we sort of began with the argument that, well, in a lot of ways, these fixed real with withdrawal systems are a little bit of a straw man because people don't spend that way. David, your research has shown that. And then we also know that, that the variable strategies do tend to do a better job of helping a portfolio last throughout a 25 or 30 year time horizon. So we tested a lot of different variable strategies and we were basically testing a couple of things. One is can this variable strategy help enlarge lifetime withdrawals? So if we're using that 3.3% as a starting uh, withdrawal rate, if we are able to be variable, can we lift that starting withdrawal and in turn lift lifetime withdrawals? And indeed, we found that the variable strategies do <clears throat> just that. They help uh, the retirees' cash flow calibrate up and down based on what's going on with the portfolio. When we, and Jeff, I should credit you because you did all the work on this, but when we looked at uh, the strategy that did the best job of the ones that we tested of enlarging lifetime income, the guardrails system did the best job of uh, ratcheting up and down, and it's kind of a ratcheting system that is based off of the portfolio's value, uh, annually updating, and we found that it did the best job of delivering the highest lifetime cash flow, the downside of a strategy like that is that for bequest-minded retirees, it'll tend to leave less left over at the end because the name of the game is that you're spending less in down markets, but you can also spend more in up markets. And that means that you're going to consume your whole portfolio because you're annually revisiting this. That was the strategy that showed best of the four that we tested. Um, another really simple strategy that we looked at that that showed reasonably well is just a modest variation on the 4% guideline, the sort of fixed real retirement spending where we um, simply said in a down market, in, in the year after a down market, foregoing the inflation adjustment in that year after the portfolio incurs losses is another way to help lift that starting withdrawal rate and lift lifetime withdrawals. I would say the big negative of that is that, you know, if you're in an environment like this one, 
after a year like 2022, would an advisor want to turn around and tell their clients, nope, no inflation adjustment for you this year, where you have a down market that's running in tandem with inflation? I think that that is the downside to such a strategy. That makes sense. I wanted to talk a bit about guaranteed income. That was actually one of our polling questions. Should retirees be considering tools like annuities? Maybe we'll broaden that out a little bit, David. Can you talk about the best framework for determining whether or not you're a good candidate for a guaranteed income product of some sort, like an annuity? And and related to that, for those who are candidates, what type of annuity do you prefer? Yeah, I mean, before we start throwing out the A word, um, I think that, that delaying claiming Social Security is like the place that every person today should get guaranteed income. I mean, it's tax advantage linked to inflation. It's like, I mean, I'd love to be in an environment where, you know, every advisor says, you know, half of my clients, you know, delay claiming to age 70, right? I think that a lot of the tools that exist out there right now that help you figure out when to claim don't do a very good job, right? If, 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 you, if you delay claiming to age 70 and you die at 71, your kids get all your stuff. That's not a bad outcome. The bad outcome is living to age 110 and depleting their resources to keep you doing well. So when I think about guaranteed income, that's like the first place that I start. And I think the, the key question with all of it is, is, is how much certainty do you need to have in terms of income every year, no matter what? I think that where you, where you see the, the, the biggest problems with, with withdrawal rates and spending is when someone says, you know, you know I need to have $100,000 a year in, 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 in non-discretionary spending, I only get 30 from Social Security. They're the ones who really need guaranteed income. Now, there could be benefits to have, you know, beyond that kind of, you know, quote-unquote needs goal, but I think that's a very basic framework that's a really good job figuring out how much do you need in terms of lifetime guaranteed or protected income. All right, so maybe until a year and a half ago, I would have said, so, so the SPIA, so the single premium immediate annuity, uh, it's not such a bad deal. Right? Yields are a little bit low, but again, for somebody who needs that safety net, who needs that consumption floor, who has that non-negotiable uh, uh, consumption floor, uh, maybe invest uh, in an annuity, uh, sure, it's going to be depleted uh, and, and decayed over time at a relatively constant inflation rate. Right back then, everybody thought it's 2%, and then every year it's kind of range-bound between between one and three percent, it doesn't really go much above. It doesn't go much below. And if it goes above three percent one year, then the next year it reverts back, and it's probably one percent the next year. Uh, and then this slow decay of two percent over time is maybe not. It might might be even desirable, right? You get a little bit more upfront, uh, and then you decay it over time. But uh, of course, right now we're in this inflation environment. Nobody knows how long this eight percent inflation is going to last. Nobody knows. Uh, is inflation going to go back to 2%? The previous speaker, uh, uh, Sammy, he, he said that he made this really good point, right? Is there a concern that the Fed might say, uh, you know, 4% infl- inflation is, is really, we're happy with that now because we don't want to risk a recession. Uh, we are happier with 4% inflation and uh, 6% unemployment than uh, 2% inflation and uh, 10% unemployment and causing a recession. So this is, now there is actually this, this uncertainty about uh, the, what, are, what are inflation rates over the next 30 years. So the, the Fed has definitely thrown us a little bit of a, of a, scr- a screwball here. Uh, and as I'm not that uh, optimistic anymore uh, about the SPIA, but I used to be. Maybe I'll throw this to the whole panel, building on some of your comments on Social Security. There's the question of when to start claiming. That's a key question. Social Security payments are inflation adjusted. 
And so now that we have higher inflation, does that change the calculus at all about when someone should claim? For instance, should someone be a bit more eager to claim if they covet the inflation protection that Social Security payments confer? Or do you think the same math, the same rationale towards claiming applies? Anybody? Well, I would say, you know, one point to make on that front is that you get the inflation adjustment on your delayed claim. Mm -hmm. So that is counted toward, once you're full retirement age, that is counted toward your eventual benefit. So, so I would anyway. Right. So it shouldn't, shouldn't factor I don't at all think into so. your claiming I don't think decision. So. But I would urge people to, especially, if, you know, for married couples, it does make sense to, I would use one of the calculators that helps you look at ideal claiming dates because it does get complicated for married partners with uh, two sets of earnings histories. So there's a free tool that I like called Open Social Security, but there are a variety of other, I think mostly paid tools, but I think that that's well worth investing in because it, the decision is just so impactful in terms of the health and longevity of the yep. overall plan. And so just in one, one quick note, there, there is no private annuity today that is offered that explicitly links to inflation. There used to be a few SPIAs back right. in the day. So I think the only, the only thing there is all of a sudden, if, if you are really affected by inflation and you're freaking out by it, this is, it's social is the only place you can go to get protected lifetime income that gives you that explicit hedge. Right, yeah, so back, back to your original question. Social security is, val is more valuable now. We have more in uncertainty about inflation. Social security is the hedge, uh, so it's more important, and it probably pushes more people into that uh, upper constraint, the 70 uh, claim at age 70. Makes sense. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about FIRE, financial independence, <laughs> retire early, Carson. Naturally, I'll turn to you on this. This is arguably the first time since the global financial crisis that some in the FIRE movement have been tested by difficult market conditions. I mean, we, we did have March of 2020, but you know that was such a sort of a brief sort of plunge down and then we zoom right back up that maybe they didn't have time to dwell on it. What are you hearing from FIRE proponents who are trying to adapt to the new realities that the market is presenting? Well, you always hear these rumblings. So, for example, 2018 was another case. Right? So I retired in 2018, and right around that time in the fourth quarter, we also had this, the, yep. the Fed scare in 2018 in the fourth quarter. And, um, yeah, it's amazing how quickly people lose their nerves. And uh, there's, so there's obviously some people that, uh, that fell off the wagon there. But I think overall, uh, because a lot of people in the FIRE community are not yet retired, right? So they found out about this maybe two, three years ago. They started at net worth zero. They're planning a retirement date, maybe 2030, 2035. So for them, they could actually use some of this uh, dollar cost averaging, yeah. right? So I mean, for example, when I uh, started my 401k contributions, was in the year 2000, right? Right around the market peak. And uh, I stayed the course and, and uh, used the dollar cost averaging. Uh, so I think there are uh, obviously always these naysayers who say, well, well, there's a market drop, so that's the end of the fire community. I think it's the, it's the opposite. So people will still come in because pandemic taught us that we don't want to work until age 67. Uh, there's also this, uh, this another, within the niche movement of fire, there's another niche, which is this extreme frugality movement, right? There's a lot of people will come in there because they see I get a 3% pay raise and then we have 8% inflation. I have to cut my spending, so how do I do that? And they Google and then they find the frugal movement. Uh, and then maybe through that, through the back door, uh, come into the fire movement through that. So I think the uh, fire, fire community is alive and well, and I think we'll, we'll still grow. 
Yeah, and sort of building on it, what do you think are the key applications of FIRE to the broader retirement public? Maybe someone who's retiring in their 60s, what could they learn from a FIRE adherent? Right. So, I mean, the biggest challenge, obviously, for early retirees is that we can't really use the Trinity study, this uh, fixed 30-year retirement horizon with fixed spending, uh, because you retire, say, at age 45, and then you have this multi-stage process where first you withdraw from your portfolio, then you get the supplemental cash flows. Uh, so uh, w th there's a huge demand for personalizing your retirement strategy, right? It has to be different for the 28-year-old and the 48-year-old. It has to be different for somebody who is, uh, say, 48-year-old uh, who expects Social Security and a company pension or maybe a government pension uh, because we, we have these, uh, these different stages in retirement. But uh, traditional retirees face that too, right? They have uh, potential spending shocks either up or down. Uh, they might have to think about uh, sending their grandkids to college uh, or they might scale down their spending when they go from the, the go years to the slow years to the no-go years. So, the, uh, so the, this, this personalization aspect uh, should be the same for both cohorts. Uh, of course, the horizon is different, but uh, a lot of the bells and whistles that we should be thinking about uh, the idiosyncratic parameters, uh, and then also the, 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 the market conditions that we face right now, I think we can, we can definitely learn from each other there. We're going to turn to audience questions in a moment here, and thanks to those of you who have already submitted it using the app. If you haven't done so, feel free to hop in and, and pose a question, and our moderator will try and funnel it to us in, in our remaining time here. Before we do that, though, Christine, I wanted to turn to you. We've On the podcast, we've talked to a number of experts who study what leads to a fulfilling retirement. Looking beyond the dollars and cents, what has your research and experience with retirees taught you is the key to a happy retirement? Sure. Uh, Jeff and I interviewed Laura Karstensen, who's the director of the Stanford Center for Longevity, and I think that was one of our favorite interviews that we've That's ever great. done. Just so thought-provoking yeah. about living throughout our lives. Um, and she made the point that this sort of border between work and retirement should be more porous, that she feels like, and th really throughout our lives, that there may be times earlier in our careers where family demands might require us to, you know, sort of pull back on work. So super thought-provoking interview with her about what gives retirees happiness. I think that key theme from her and from Michael Finca, who David, I know you've collaborated with for many years, is engagement. That it, it is engagement in some sort of pursuit, doesn't need to be paid work, but some sort of pursuit that provides you with the sense that I'm providing value here on earth. And, and that might be engagement with family, grandkids, whatever it is, social bonds. Laura's work certainly shows that staying engaged socially is absolutely essential to our happiness throughout our lives, but especially as we age. And interestingly, she pointed out that retirees tend to uh, bring down their social circles a little bit. They cast off some people who maybe weren't uh, true close friends, and, and their, so their friendships become higher quality as they age. And I love that advisors increasingly are sort of embarking on this journey with their clients where they're thinking about them holistically from the standpoint of not just making sure their portfolios last, but making sure that their time on earth allocations are just as thoughtfully made as those financial allocations. Makes sense. Given the fact that we're at 10 minutes to go, why don't we open it up for audience questions? Sil, you want to take it away? 
Yes, we've received uh, several versions of the following question from Caleb Bird. Many retirement savers I talk to think Social Security won't be there for them by the time they retire. Is this fear warranted? No. <laughs> so, I mean, I think anyone that reads the news knows that it's not, it's not fully funded, right? But even then, if you look at the, the PAYGO statistics, about three-fourths of benefits can be paid. Um, I just have a really, really hard time believing that, you know, we're going to cut grandma's Social Security check. Right, I think that there are going to be structural changes to the system. I think it's going to affect younger Americans. But I have a, you know, I have a really hard time believing that, that, it's, that it's not going to be there and it's, and it's mostly full form as it exists today. I don't know if... Yeah, I think you have to make it to age 55. That seems to be historically the... Uh, because you're not going to do that rug pull from existing retirees or, or people right before retirement. And then even at age 55, that's where the changes will be slowly phased in. It's not going to be... Uh, boom, January 1st, that year is your birthday, uh, you lose 20% of your benefits. So uh, it, it will be slowly rolled in. So probably anybody who will be between the ages of 55 and 35 at the time when the changes have to be made, uh, that's where there's going to be a phase in. And uh, so I cross my fingers, uh, 2029, uh, it's going to be after that and uh, I'll be safe. What is the current state of the art in dealing with potentially catastrophic long-term care expenses in retirement? Who would like to take that, Christine? I can take that. I am obsessed with this topic, as many of my colleagues know. Um, both of my parents had a long-term care need later in life, so I experienced, um, thankfully they had the funds to cover it, but uh, experienced just how high those costs can be, especially where you have two partners. Um, and unfortunately, the state of funding long-term care, there aren't any good answers. The, I think the long-term care insurance market is quite troubled. We've seen um, the purchases of, of pure long-term care policies go way, way down. These hybrid life insurance slash long-term care policies have increasingly taken up the slack. Um, but I always urge people to kind of plot themselves on a spectrum. So at the low end, in terms of having very modest assets, you want to think about relying on government-provided care. The Medicaid is the largest payer of those expenses in the U.S. Not a great solution, but the solution for many people. And then at the other extreme uh, would be more affluent people who will likely have the funds to supply or defray any long-term care needs. What I always say is if you're in that camp, I think it's important to maybe set aside a separate bucket, perhaps a fourth bucket for the end of life, whether it is a really long lifespan um, or long-term care need, or if you don't have either of those eventualities, maybe the money then is going to your heirs. But I like the idea of thinking about what those expenses might look like. I think if, you know, if you're looking at a married couple, you would maybe want to take a two-year long-term care need per partner and then look at the Genworth statistics about the expenses, which would maybe get you to 400, 500,000. Um, what I don't like is when I hear these one-size-fits-all cutoffs about, oh, if you have a, a $2 million or whatever it might be, you're fine to self-fund long-term care. And the reason is, I don't know what you're spending from that $2 million portfolio. If your spending is overly generous, that may not be enough. 
So I think it's really valuable for advisors to do that customization for clients and to really talk it through because this is such an area of angst for older adults. In fact, when I speak to groups of retirees, this is the one question that gets people really energized and not in a good way. They are very, very worried about these costs eroding their portfolios entirely. David mentioned that the 60-40 portfolio has stood the test of time here and abroad. Few of the data sets contain a period where a 50-year decking interest rate supercycle reverses. How might this change the role of fixed income in a portfolio? Well, I mean, I think, you know, I think that there is this prospect of, of rising yields. There's this great study that the Bank of England did that came out a year or two ago that shows that Interest rates have been going down pretty consistently for the last like 700 years, and you know I don't I don't have all the answers, right? I don't think anyone knows where the markets are headed next month versus next year, but I think that that you know the, the right portfolio does require some combination of, of of safe and risky assets. I think that those safe assets are likely to be bonds, and then how you how you build the portfolio can vary by client. I think that buckets make a ton of sense for retirees, and similar strategies can work too for folks in accumulation. Yeah, so I mean, obviously the reason why we had the super cycle is because we had that run up in interest rates between mm -hmm. the 1960s and 1982. So right. again, so the, the 60 40 portfolio would have survived that negative, that bad super cycle up to double digits. And uh, yeah, I mean, so obviously it helped a lot on the way down. Uh, but uh, I mean, one of the historical worst case scenarios where, say, a 60 40 portfolio with a 4% withdrawal rate worked more or less, it included double digit interest rates and interest rates at uh, almost 20%. So I mean, that, uh, that's, that's something we should, we should still keep in mind. The large asset managers are starting to create retirement income offers for plan participants through product and service offers. What are your reactions to these solutions? Who would like to take that one? I, Christine, yeah, go for it. Yeah, I have felt like this is the area that asset managers need to work on because there is so much that is suboptimal about our current system where it's like, hey, you're 65, we know cognitive decline is a thing, and here's your pot of money and figure it out, especially in this really quite low, quite still still quite low interest rate environment. So I love the idea of, and of course they won't all be good, but turnkey paycheck equivalent retirement income solutions are completely needed in this marketplace. And maybe, you know, maybe it's the kind of thing that advisors do for their clients, but I love the idea that increasingly we're seeing this adoption of retirement income solutions in 401k plans to really make this simpler because it's, it's so overdue. I'm, I am super pumped as well. <laughs> I, I'm waiting for some sort of a crowdfunded innovation of basically not a pension fund, but basically a sequence of return hedge between savers and retirees. Right? So for example, a buy and hold investor doesn't care about sequence of return risk. If you take one saver and one retiree, you lump them together, you have again a buy and hold investor that doesn't care about sequence of return risk. And because, well, depending on how your sequence is, sometimes the saver benefits, sometimes the, the retiree benefits. Uh, and if you could lump them together and they could uh, form a team, say over the next 10, 15 years, mm -hmm. we match up one retiree with one saver. Um, 
Then we have, it's not a pension fund, right? Because it doesn't hedge against longevity. Um, uh, it's, it just hedges the sequence of returns. It doesn't, it doesn't even hedge equity risk, right? Because the average return still determines what's your final, uh, what's your final uh, portfolio value. It purely hedges the sequence of return risk if we lump together. Uh, but I don't know how you would do that. I mean, somebody in Silicon Valley should think about that. I think we have time for one more, Sil, if you've got one. It might be a little hairy. What does the panel think about probability Monte Carlo analysis? Can these systems be improved? Are they assessing enough? Did you hear that? I didn't hear the question. Probability of success, again? Monte Carlo metrics, can they be improved? Oh, Monte Carlo? Is that, I think they can definitely be improved. Um, I mean, I'll just go real quick. I just think that, that, that I like the idea of stochastic models, but I just hate the fact that we almost everyone quantifies outcome as success or fail and doesn't incorporate dynamic spending, doesn't actually reflect reality. Unless we have any other, I have one final question to ask you all and you can answer it really quick. What do you think the pandemic has revealed about retirement planning that wasn't as apparent before? Christine, anything come to mind? Emergencies, spending sort of money in reserves, is that one? Well, for sure. And this is kind of separate from the decumulation question, but I love the idea of using healthy mental accounting like the bucket system for emergency savings. I love the idea of helping workers save for rainy days that they, they can tap those funds that might not necessarily get any tax benefits, but I think there's more to be done in the realm of healthy forms of mental accounting, and I think that that emergency funding embedded within the employer-provided context can make a ton of sense. I'm excited to see more uptake of that. We're up on time, so we'll leave it there. Christine, David, Karsten, thanks so much for your insights. Please join me and thank me, the panel. Thanks for joining us on The Long View. If you could, please take a minute to subscribe to and rate the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at S-Youth1, which is S-Y-O-U-T-H and the number one. And at Christine underscore Benz. George Cassidy is our engineer for the podcast, and Carrie Gretchik produces the show notes each week. Finally, we'd love to get your feedback. If you have a comment or a guest idea, please email us at thelongview at morningstar.com. Until next time, thanks for joining us. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. Jeff Patak is an employee of Morningstar Research Services, LLC. Morningstar Research Services is a subsidiary of Morningstar Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analyses, or opinions, or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position 
investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decisions.